This is Salt and Spine. It is a surprise to people that writing a cookbook is actually about writing because people think that it's about cooking. You have to know how to write a book. People ask me, like, what's the most, what's something that's changed a lot in publishing or what's the most important or hopeful part about publishing? And my answer is that authors have more control now than they ever have had. But that also means, and this is where the double-edged sword comes in, they also have more work to do than they have ever had before. I mean, an agent's primary role is being an advocate for their client, for the author. And that comes in many, many different ways, helping them put their best foot forward in terms of the idea and the proposal and finding the best fit for them in an editor and in a house and getting them the best possible deal and deal terms and shepherding the project all along the way. Hi there, I'm Cleo Worster and you're listening to Salt and Spine, stories behind cookbooks. You're tuning in today for a very special episode. It's the last in our four-part series, Behind the Spine. In this series, we've stepped away from a focus on the authors to hear from the other talented folks who helped to create the cookbooks that we all know and love. You've already heard from the recipe testers, the photographers, and the book designers, who all sculpt recipes and stories into the finished books that we rely on in our own kitchens. But today, you'll be hearing from the folks who make publishing a cookbook possible in the first place, the literary agents and the experts that work behind the scenes. You just heard from today's guests, Diane Jacob, Rika Alanik, and Monica Woods. First in today's episode, we'll hear from Diane Jacob, the author of Will Write for Food, the complete guide to writing cookbooks, restaurant reviews, articles, memoir, fiction, and more, which is now in its fourth edition and is used as a textbook in universities around the world. Diane Jacob worked as an editor-in-chief for newspapers, magazines, and publishing houses before going freelance. Now she's a writing coach and consultant, an editor, and the writer of two cookbooks, She's also served as a judge for the IACP Cookbook Awards and the IACP Food Writing Awards. In short, Diane Jacob knows her way around food media. Our other two guests today are both literary agents who work directly with authors to fine-tune proposals and get book deals. The second voice you'll hear today is Monica Woods. She started in the publishing industry about 10 years ago, and she says that she always wanted to be a literary agent, to work directly with the writer to make their books possible. After working for other larger firms for a period, Monica decided to launch her own literary magazine, Triangle House Review. Last, you'll hear from Rika Alanique, who got into publishing after working for five years in professional kitchens at Picheline and Danielle. Rika worked on special projects with Danielle Belude, including a cookbook he was doing with Scribner. Scribner asked Rika to join their team to help with cookbooks after her project with Danielle. Rika left her position at Clarkson Potter and joined the David Black Agency to work primarily as a literary agent. In today's episode, we'll hear from our guests about the changes they're seeing in publishing, mainly how social media has flipped publishing dynamics and given way for new voices to break into the industry, what it costs to make a cookbook, and what publishers are looking for. We'll hear from Monica and Rika about what an agent's work looks like, and we'll get some advice from Diane about how to tackle a cookbook project. We're going to jump right in. If you want to write a cookbook, what is the first thing that you should do? Well, I suppose you should ask yourself, why do you want to write a cookbook? Is it just because you love to cook? Is it a form of self-expression for you? Do you think that you're going to make some money? Would you like to be famous? Would you like to share your expertise? What is the purpose? I, I think it would be good to get clear on that. You know, maybe it's just for your friends and family. Maybe people think you're an amazing cook and they keep asking you for recipes so you'd like to collect them somewhere. So in that case, you could self-publish. I guess it depends who's in your audience. If there are food writers and chefs and caterers in the audience and they have some professional 
uh, knowledge about writing recipes and developing them, then maybe they want to be traditionally published. A lot of times, the person who connects an author to the publishing house and secures them a book deal is a literary agent. While an author can get published without an agent, it can be difficult, if not impossible, to access the larger publishing houses without the help of an expert. And besides, agents do a lot more than just get a book deal, but their work can be mysterious to those of us who aren't in the publishing world. So I asked Monica Woods, just what exactly is her job as an agent? I love this question. So I'm a writer as well, and people always Mm -hmm. say, well, then you don't need an agent because you are an agent. And I just laugh because that truly means that people really don't know what an agent can do for a writer. There's this feeling of being able to be supported by someone else and someone else advocating for you in your career that is really unmatched. There's nothing like it. Thinking, oh, I have support in my artistic endeavor by someone who knows what they're talking about feels really amazing. And that's just something you can't give yourself. Even if you're someone who has this amazing platform or whatever, you end up hiring people to help you, right? Like you can't do everything yourself. And what an agent does is a, it, it, like a lot of people get agents because they really want that feeling of like, I'm a professional writer, right? It's just like this weird feeling. Like once you have an agent, you feel like you're a professional writer. But in the food space, it's like, there are so many chefs who have restaurants, branding deals, they're on TV. And the cookbook is like this beautiful artistic Pièce resistance of their branding, but it's not their main source of income, and it requires external forces in a way that other things kind of don't. And so the agent is the kind of key to navigating that and being like, okay, how do I actually make a book? Making a book is like a mysterious process, and an agent demystifies that. It's our job to like know that by the our hands. And then on the other side, again, there are a lot of agents who are doing things like negotiating speaking agreements, trying to find you speaking engagements. I know some who do TV appearances for their clients, like branding deals, all that stuff. And then you are free to be an artist and create your art and to worry about what's the next thing that I want to push a boundary with when it comes to food. I heard someone say on a panel once and I've since stolen it and forgotten who said it. So it's a terrible um, appropriation on my part, but like business, <laughs> like writing is art and publishing is business. And so mm-hmm. where I take that as my own is that agents are the ones who are like the diplomats in that where like we can translate to the artists, what the business is about. And we can translate to the business what the artists are trying to do. When I asked Rika the same question, she also talked about advocating for her writers and pushing forward the work that they want to publish. An agent doesn't just get the writer a book deal. They take on responsibility for a lot of the business aspects of writing a cookbook. I mean, an agent's primary role is being an advocate for their client, for the author. And that comes in many, many different ways, helping them put their best foot forward in terms of the idea and the proposal and finding the best fit for them in an editor and in a house and getting them the best possible deal and deal terms and shepherding the project all along the way, you know, from from the cover disputes or timing issues or what have you. I mean, it's not, it's about the deal, but it's about so much more than that. Mm-hmm. And hopefully it's it's a real relationship over, you know, again, over multiple books. That's the most satisfying part when you can work with someone over multiple projects. I have a client, um, I was her editor for her first two cookbooks, and now I've been her agent for her next two cookbooks. We're the same age. We, you know, we, we our kids are friends at this point. <laughs> um, yeah, we've become friends. It's really nice. What are some of the things you really love about your job that you 
are able to do now that you're a literary agent? I know exactly who I work for. I work for the author. I work Mm. for the client. I don't have to back an ugly cover that someone in sales loves or the publisher loves or whomever loves that uh, the author hates. And, you know, and maybe I don't like, I mean, my opinion doesn't really matter, but I don't have to toe a line of trying to force something that, you know, doesn't need to be. I can help the author to advocate for something else or help explain why, okay, maybe this is the right thing. If, you know, have, let's have a second look at it. But, it. but it's great to know where my allegiances lie. Rika talked to me about some of the ways that she advocates for her clients along the way. I think it's, you know, my job is to, is to help translate things and to be their advocate. So, you know, I can help them understand why a publisher is pushing for a cover or a title or a, a pub date or whatever it is. Um, it doesn't mean someone has to accept it. Um, it, you know, it's, it should be a conversation where here, here are the pros, here are the cons. I mean, in the end, if, if a, client really hates their cover, the publisher doesn't want to put that cover on it anyway, because they don't want the client going around town saying, you know, the author going around town saying, I hate this cover. Like that doesn't like, oh, I liked a different cover. You know, that doesn't help anyone. So there's usually a compromise Mm -hmm. that can be found um, that helps everyone out a little bit. It also is possible to get published without a literary agent um, in some instances with smaller presses. So I'm wondering what you see as sort of the benefit of going the route with a traditional publishing process or with a literary agent versus kind of striking out on your own and just putting it out there. With a good agent, you will be getting a much better deal in, in all possible Mm -hmm. ways. Um, financially payout royalties, royalty rates, um, everything, you know, small terms in the contract, (laughs) um, all sorts of deal points. Um, You know, our agency does lots of deals and we have boilerplates with a lot of, um, with all of the big five publishers and a lot of independents. And that is a huge um, bargaining tool. Um, I've taken over people who have over clients who have had their first book deal where they were not represented and sometimes it's like a land grab. Um, I've looked at those publishing contracts and they're like, wow, they didn't, you know, you don't even have copyright of this book or you're not earning any royalties or um, all different kinds of things. So it's not to say it, it can't happen or, or, you know, that's an awful thing or all publishers, you know, take advantage of people who aren't represented. I'm not saying that. But a good literary agent earns their keep um, in myriad ways along the process. There's a lot that happens along the way to getting a cookbook deal and between being offered a deal by a publishing house and seeing the book in print. The logistics can be daunting. And like Rika said, it's nice to have an agent to manage the business side of things. I wanted to know exactly what does that business side look like? So most of the time for cookbooks, the deliverables will be the words and the visuals, whether, you know, we'll, we'll call those photographs. They might be illustrations. We'll say photographs for for this example. So you're delivering the words, the recipes, those should be tested, and the photographs. You do not need to deliver design. That is something that the publishing house covers. But you're paid that advance Mm -hmm. in chunks. You're paid from the publisher some when you sign the contract, some a year later when or more when your manuscript and photos have been delivered and accepted. So not just you've handed in a draft of the manuscript, but it's been revised and 
they're happy with it and it's going into copy editing and they've accepted it, which could be months apart, on publication, which is another year later. And then sometimes there, you know, some places have another advanced chunk given after publication at some point. So you need to make sure when you sign, you're going to have to use some of that money for your photographer. Frequently, photographers will get paid half of their fee when you sign them up and half when they're all done and the photos are accepted. So you need to keep some of that advance, first advance payment for your photographer and then keep some of the second advance payment for them as well. It's a lot of managing all of those sorts of things. You don't, no one should be hopefully out of pocket. That's not a great Mm -hmm. place to be. So we try and avoid that at all costs. Diane said that aside from paying for the assets, there are other costs that aren't quite as clear up front. And it's actually not that common to make good money publishing a cookbook. So if you got 25 grand and and the agent took 15% and then the photographer took 20 grand and then you have to pay for groceries, how much is going to be left over? $1.50? Those aren't, aren't even all your expenses because then when you get closer to publication date, you might want to hire um, a publicist to help you get the word out about your book and boost the sales. And then if you're going to travel around to bookstores to promote the book or you have speaking engagements, um, most of the time the publisher is not paying for that. You're going to be, you know, staying with friends and paying for your own Uber and rental car and airfare and whatever else comes with that. So then maybe you want to buy ads on Facebook. I don't know. People do that. That's another expense. So there really isn't going to be much left over. And most authors never see any more money than their advance. There is this other thing called royalties, but you can't earn any royalties until you have paid out your advance. So just to make the math easy, let's say that your book costs, uh, whatever your book costs, you get a dollar every time it sells and you get an advance of $10,000. So that means that you're not going to get any more money until you sell 10,000 books. Then when you sell 10,001 books, you will get 85 cents and your, your agent will get 15 cents. So, you know, most authors never see their royalties. So I wanted to know, what are literary agents and publishers looking for when they sign someone new? We'll hear first from Diane, who writes in her book that in order to get a book deal, it's important that authors prove themselves as writers first. In fact, their platform often correlates the amount of money that they're paid on their advance. So your tip in your book, it was not, you know, to write a book proposal when you first want to write a cookbook, but it's to start sort of building up your credentials and platforms. I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to why that is, why a cookbook author should start before the proposal. It's mostly because... Writing a book should not be the first thing that you do as a food writer. Unknown people cannot get book deals, generally speaking. Celebrities can get book deals, like Stanley Tucci probably didn't have any trouble getting a book deal for his memoir. Um, But for the rest of us, a book is not the first step. And people really hate it when I tell them that they need to back up before going forward. But it really is true if you want to write a book. 
because writing a cookbook is not the same as liking to cook. First of all, it's a book. And who writes books? Mm. Writers. That's who writes books. And so are you a writer? And if the answer is no, then you're not really qualified to write a book. So then you have to back up and write things so that you will be qualified in the eyes of a publisher. And you have to write recipes and they have to be published. And then they have to be the same kind of recipes that you would publish in your book to establish what I call pre-approval, which means that some editor thought at a magazine or at a website thought that your recipes were very good, worthwhile, and worth putting out to their audience. And so that gives you pre-approval to reach another editor who is a book editor uh, that, that you could theoretically be a cookbook author. And Diane is right about that. Publishing houses want books that sell, and they want their writers to have an audience. But the way that authors can generate that audience is shifting. Let's hear now from Monica Woods. So, you know, TikTok is a place where you could grow your own platform and do it all on your own. And then all of a sudden, someone's like, hey, would you be interested in doing a cookbook, right? Or like, Mm -hmm. be an established person and start a a TikTok and like explode even more. Um, Instagram is also a place where you can really grow your platform as a food person. Um, Food, especially, I think, has seen an increase in avenues to develop your platform, Mm -hmm. as well as an increase in ways to be heard and to publish as a food writer. I think social media, things like TikTok, Instagram, Substack, like being able to really create your own brand has really shifted what publishers are looking for. So as a literary agent, how have you seen that affect some of your clients and how has that shifted your work with them? It's shifted my work in a lot of ways, one of which is like brainstorm, being more active in brainstorming how that can happen for a client. Mm -hmm. So like, for example, pitching podcasts for them or like coming up with ideas for a podcast for a writer and being like, you should pitch this. Let's make this happen. Or being like, hey, you're not on TikTok enough. Let's I'm and sending them TikToks that I think do a good job or like. Mm you know, being like, you should start a Substack. And is there anything that you've always wanted to write more at length about without the parameters of working at a magazine? Um, or saying like, hey, like your TikTok is great, but you're not tagging the place that you went, you know, like stuff like that. Um, mm-hmm. It means that I'm like, a subscribe to I'm like, I'm reading their stuff more. I'm I'm part of their daily world more because like I follow them on all those platforms for fun because I like it. But then I can also <laughs> be someone who says, hey, let me give you some feedback. Um, mm-hmm. And then from there, it's kind of also affected the way that I work on proposals, which is like, let's talk about all this work you're doing. And let's talk about the work you're going to do in the next two years before your book comes out. So it makes me think of that marketing and publicity aspect of a project as more of a narrative or a timeline. So rather than it being like, mm-hmm. here's all the things that I've done, here are all my clips, here's my numbers on socials, I think, okay, so we're going to sell your book. What do we do for the first six months of that? What do we do for the next six months of that? Then how do we promote your book using all that work that we've laid? Um, mm-hmm. So to me, it's changed a lot, actually. And I think that it's, again, it's a double-edged sword because people ask me, like, what's the most like what's something that's changed a lot of publishing or what's the most important or helpful part about publishing. 
And my answer is that authors have more control now than they ever have had. But that also means, and this is where the double-edged sword comes in, they also have more work to do than they have ever had before. So that control and that freedom and that ability to market yourself, become a brand, do all these things is so wonderful because it can get you to a point that like you couldn't have gotten to before ever, like for a lot of different reasons. But now it means, oh, I literally am like running four businesses in one, just like trying to get my platform up. So to me, it's like, it's freeing in a way because like, you don't have to leave it to chance. Like hard work can really get you there and being dedicated mm-hmm. and some can really get you there. But like, then you're like, okay, well, I'm doing the sub stack. I have to send it out two times a week. I'm doing this TikTok. I have to post three videos a day. Otherwise the algorithm is off. On Instagram, you have to do two a day. Otherwise like your algorithm, you fall off. Like it's mm-hmm. a lot of work. You can't, and it, it's just like, you can't go on vacation. You can't, you, all these things. But then also the work-life bound, boundaries like start to erase too. Like right. work and living and work are so intertwined when you're doing that, um, that it can be really hard to like, separate those two things. So again, to me, it's like, it's amazing that you could be a New York Times bestseller without having ever gotten any support from a publisher. That's incredible. But on the other hand, it's like, at what cost? Like the workload is really high and the burnout can be real. I'm Clea Worster, Salt and Spine producer. You can follow us on Instagram at Salt and Spine, where you'll find the chance to win copies of featured cookbooks as well as recipes from the books. Each week, we love sitting down with another of your and my favorite cookbook authors to tell the stories behind cookbooks. From Jacques Pepin and Nigella Lawson to Samin Nozrat and Carla Hall, Salt and Spine is the leading podcast featuring interviews with your favorite authors. If you're a new listener, check out our catalog of more than 100 interviews with cookbook authors. Plus, we publish delicious and exclusive recipes, hold cookbook giveaways for listeners like you, and so much more. And we can only do it thanks to listeners like you. The best way to support our work here at Salt and Spine is by subscribing to our Patreon page. You can join the Salt and Spine community today and support our effort to bring you top-notch interviews and the best cookbook content starting at just $2 a month. Subscribers receive early access to events, opportunities to win signed cookbooks, and bonus content. You can find out more and join the Salt and Spine community at www.patreon.com slash salt and spine. Before the break, we heard Monica talk a little bit about the double-edged sword that has been created by being able to reach your audience directly. I wanted to know if writers having more control has created an opening for new diverse voices to break into publishing. In some cases, authors are able to build a platform large enough that they no longer have to rely on the publishing industry's support financially. I asked Diane if she's seeing this affecting who's actually getting published. Well, that is something that publishers are grappling with because, you know, Mm -hmm. they want what they want, but they also realize that that publishing hasn't been very diverse historically in the United States, that it's been an industry of white people publishing other white people pretty much the majority. And so there has been a a reckoning where, you know, they're aware of this fact and they're trying to do something about it. And they might be very interested in, in somebody who's Ghanaian and wanted to do a Ghanaian cookbook, but they're, they're going to want to inquire about that person's platform because they can't help themselves. They still, they still want what they want. They want books that sell. They want somebody with an audience. They want someone with experience. 
writing recipes, and somebody who knows how to develop recipes, somebody who knows how to write a book. So they want to be they want to be able to check off everything on their list and have a diverse voice. And so it they're it's a, they're struggling. You know, they of course they all want to discover the next Ina Garten or Yotam Lenghi, but that that's an aspirational goal for publishers. They they know that the majority of the people that they sign are not going to be on the garden and Yotam Lenghi, but you know, they're still looking for that kind of person. <laughs> they want, they want everything, but they are willing to compromise when they find somebody who they think would succeed. Monica talked about these shifts too. She says that authors have gained a lot of independence, that the barriers Diane mentioned are easier to work around when you don't have to rely on a major publishing house to reach your audience. She says in some ways it's democratizing the whole process. Those barriers and obstacles have been there for a long time for a reason. And that reason has been preserving and gatekeeping who can have that success and who can earn money and prestige and platforms and more book deals, right? And so now those those obstacles have been really torn down, which means that anybody with a voice and hard work can really earn an earn that audience themselves. Mm-hmm. And so now you see publishers in the positions of chasing instead of gatekeeping. So instead of these people like pitching them, like applying themselves, failing, hitting this wall of like, oh, they're being gatekept out. Publishers are chasing success. So they want to make money and sell books and be cool and have the next best voice out there. The person who's going to get a TV show, the person who's got a, you know, 5 million TikTok followers or whatever. So if you get to that point, you have more control and you don't have to worry about being kept out anymore because what does being kept out even mean? Like, you probably make more money just on TikTok. They pay you per view, right? You know, so like (laughs) things have really changed. And like, it's to a point now where, you know, publishers are saying, here's why you should come to us. And here's what we can do for you rather than an author having to to make that same plea. And I think that, of course, this is not always going to be the case because there are Mm -hmm. plenty of people who don't have that insane platform that that's happening to who are really worthy, wonderful content food recipe creators who deserve that chance that maybe aren't getting it still because their numbers are lower. But I just feel like that I, that split of that having more control has been so wonderful for making food media more equitable and spreading out the idea of who is someone we want to listen to talking about food, whose food we want to make, what kind of food we want to eat, been exposed to so much more. And there's just been a whole new world opening up. So I just feel like that the TikTok to book pipeline, especially in the food space, is going to like expand. It's going to be similar to the Instagram to book pipeline that happened. The Tumblr to book pipeline that was, you know, there's versions of this. You just have to go back further and further and you just get a new version of that. Like if you think about like Anthony Bourdain, he became who he is because he published an essay in The New Yorker, right? So like it's always been like this, that something new has has shown shined a light on someone who hasn't been heard before. And then that person acquires some sort of platform and fame. Um, and then the next new thing happens and it, everyone's always adapting. And it's just like, people just get so used to the old thing being the way that it was that like this new thing is so crazy. And it's like, TikTok's not that crazy. Like Instagram, you guys felt that way. Tumblr, you guys felt that way. Um, 
So yeah, I just, I get excited about that. While an audience certainly helps a writer get published and can even give a writer more freedom, as Monica mentioned, that audience isn't necessarily the only way to get published. Rika says a new author can get by with a strong voice and a good idea. The audience is just a bonus. I know that sometimes that credibility can come through already having an audience or experience doing that type of work. How has that influenced the types of cookbooks that you're seeing come through um, and the types of clients that you take on? I think it's expanded a little bit, you know, obviously the definition of platform. I mean, for me, platform isn't, it's nice. It's not always a be all end all. It's not, you know, a a deal breaker if someone doesn't have a million followers on Instagram or what have you. I mean, it's nice to know someone has a built in audience, but sometimes Mm -hmm. an idea can transcend that a voice can transcend that. And sometimes, you know, someone's platform might not be huge on social media, but it might be large somewhere else, or it might be not be large, you know, in some other place, but but they have a very dedicated following on Instagram or what have you. I haven't quite figured out the whole book talk thing. <laughs> I think it might be more for novels, but <laughs> certainly there are some folks who are who are, are getting cookbook deals out of it. You know, mm-hmm. that's not a hundred percent my thing right now. But but that may change. And it's certainly, you know democratizing how how people are being able to reach folks and establish a platform. Yes, a platform can give somebody access to publication that they wouldn't otherwise have, but there are other ways for things to change. Last year, when Rika appeared in our episode Creating a More Equitable Cookbook Industry, she talked about some of the barriers that Diane and Monica have also mentioned. I asked Rika to tell me a little more about why she chose to make the career change and become a literary agent five years ago. I wasn't seeing exactly the kinds of projects I wanted to publish, or sometimes I was and sometimes I wasn't. And I was starting to have to go after potential authors myself. And that is a full-time job. It's called a literary agent. And as an editor, you really need to be buying 10 to 15 books a year. And so it's hard to be reaching out to a bunch of folks who may or may not produce something pretty soon. Whereas as an agent, as an agent that's that's all you do is reach out to people and, and whether they produce something in a month or in two years or 10 years, whatever it is, it, it's not as important because you can have a lot more irons in the fire. I also, I love editing, but I no longer loved editing 150 recipes, 60,000 words a month or having four of those projects collide at once and having to do that. I loved the author interactions and guiding authors and working with them and building those relationships and working with people over multiple books. And so that's really something I still get to do as an agent. I can scratch the itch of working on a cookbook proposal, which is only maybe 40 or 50 pages instead of a 350 page word document. Yeah. So I could, it's kind of scratches a lot of the itches. It's, it's same, same difference, really. And I get to reach out to different kinds of folks and really affect what's getting published. And I get to work on more than just cookbooks, too. Rika mentioned that a big part of an agent's job is finding new talent and influencing what's published. So I wanted to know, how does she do that? What does it look like for you to find a new client? You mentioned going out and seeking the kinds of projects that you want to see. How do you, how do you begin a collaboration with an author? So sometimes I'm reaching out to someone cold because I've read an article they wrote or they're mentioned in an article and I've looked them up online and it looks like they have an amazing restaurant or teach a really interesting thing at a university. And so I'm trying to get them to see if they have an idea for a book. Is this something they're thinking about now? Is it something they might want to do in the future and get on their radar? 
to help them out with mm-hmm. that. It's, it's yeah. a lot of reading, a lot of going after folks. Sometimes people already have representation. Sometimes they're not interested. Sometimes they don't get back to me at all. Sometimes I sign them and then they don't write anything. But it's, you know, it's all a process. Of course, agents are also sent pitches cold by authors. And in those instances, they don't have to go find the talent. It finds them. I asked Rika what she's looking for in a cookbook proposal. So for a cookbook proposal, I'm looking for three things. I'm looking for the idea. What's the hook? What's new Mm -hmm. here? Um, What is this book about? Why do we need this in the world? How is it different from what's out there or complementary or what have you? I'm looking for the person's voice, their expertise, their opinions. How do they say it? What do they have to say? How persuasive and and engaging and captivating are they on the page. And then I'm looking for their platform. Why are they an expert on this? What what gives them this expertise? Why are they passionate about this? Why are they the person to write this book? Rika mentioned earlier that the platform isn't a deal breaker when it comes to signing a new client. But I wanted to know if a writer could get by with just a platform. I think you have to have idea and voice. I think, um, well, I... I uh, I guess you can have idea and platform, but those are not my favorite kinds of projects to work on. Um, <laughs> you know, I think I think that's where you're just sort of taking um, someone who has a big name and and they're doing something that maybe they're not super duper passionate about, or maybe someone else is writing it without a ton of their involvement. Um, you know, obviously there are big mm-hmm. names who are passionate about food and do it well and and work with a co-writer. And that's fine. That's not what I'm saying. They get their voice on the page. Um, But I think, you know, ideally you have to Mm -hmm. have the idea and the voice, Um, you know, and certainly for smaller, for single subject types of books, um, sometimes the platform is a little bit less important, but yeah, idea and voice. Those are my favorite. (laughs) I asked Monica how she would describe a writer with a strong voice, somebody she might want to help get published. When you're talking about a writer who has a voice, what for you kind of sums up an exciting new voice in food writing? What kinds of adjectives might you use to describe that voice? I'll talk about another one of my writers. Her name is Korsha Wilson. She's wonderful. Um, The thing about Korsha is that she's bringing you things that maybe you felt familiar with, but that Mm -hmm. she's uncovering something about it. I really love to feel surprised especially since food is so cultural and so tied to identity where it's sure, maybe I've eaten that (laughs) and I know what it is. Maybe I've eaten it a hundred times, but there's going to be so much about it that I don't know just because I, of my own identity. So I love to be surprised by a writer. I love that depth of knowledge. I love someone who can listen to the people they're interviewing and talking to also. I think that's really important. And I also just love someone who lets another person's voice shine. Someone who has that skill of listening to someone and then putting them down on the page. I think that's important too. So a voice to me is something that feels very individual, but that can also Mm -hmm. end up feeling universal because of that identification or that relatability. Agents and publishers often align in what they're looking for. After all, it's an agent's job to get a writer published. So I asked Diane to tell me a little bit about what a publisher wants, given that only about 1% of proposals are accepted by them. So I'm wondering what types of things are publishing houses looking for? You know, it's kind of funny. They can't can't really tell. Well, sometimes they're looking for something specific. Like I had um, a writer tell me that an agent contacted her and told her that 
the agent had been talking to a publisher recently and the publisher is looking for another vegan book. And so the agent found my client who I'm working with her on a book proposal and, and she phoned her and said, Hey, you know, would you like to do a vegan book for this publisher? Cause I might be able to help you with that. So that was very good timing since we were working on a proposal for a book. Um, so yeah, they, they need their vegan book. They need their Italian book. They need their bread book and their pizza book and their grilling book. And, you know, every year there are those kinds of books. And so, and there, there's never going to be too many of them. There's always going to be a, a new bread book and a new grilling book and a new Italian cooking book and whatever else, probably a new vegetarian or vegan book. So they're, they're always looking for those established things but then they don't want the same book that has been written before so they want you know a good idea but something that's not too out there they want something familiar but something that's not too familiar and they want something that's different but not too different and they want comfort food but not just comfort food and they want twists on things that have already been done i'm wondering do you have advice for people who have gotten a cookbook deal or trying to get a cookbook deal about like how to begin the process of writing a cookbook? The first question is, you know, why are you writing a cookbook? But then let's say you're writing a cookbook and you have the right motivation. You know, you're not going to make any money, but you still have to write a book. What's your first piece of advice that like helps people get to the book and, and start writing? Well, I mean, it is a, it is a huge task, and often you're going to get a whole year to write a cookbook. And uh, I was very pleased to have these two experiences of writing these two cookbooks so that I could write, you know, from a place of knowledge about the cookbook process, um, mm-hmm. even though it was a little different with me because these were really books that I was writing for a chef. Um, but... Really, I mean, it's the same as any overwhelming task. You have to you have to break it down into little pieces and 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 then make a schedule for yourself because you can run into a lot of trouble if you s- spend the first couple of months, you know, procrastinating or spinning your wheels or thinking that you have a lot of time and then you're suddenly you're in a bind and the editor wants to know where the chapter is and you haven't written it and. So it's best to, um, you know, make yourself a schedule of which chapter you're going to do first, which recipes you're going to do first, how long is it going to take, how many times are you going to do the recipe, is anyone going to test the recipe, you got to line all that up. I hope someone does, because another problem that cookbook authors have, especially if they're really good cooks, which you assume that someone would be if they wanted to write a cookbook, We tend to Mm -hmm. think that other people, namely our our, our readers, know what we know. And that's what leads to a lot of recipes that don't turn out well, because you make too many assumptions about what what they know or what they're willing to do. When you've looked at a recipe, Mm -hmm. you're like, I'm not doing that. Nope, nope, that's too much work. Nope, not going to the store for that one item. For us who are totally obsessed. (laughs) We, we probably have that one item in our cupboard and then we think everybody else has it. And so you got, you got to watch all that stuff. Finally, I had to ask what cookbooks were so successful to these three experts that they actually cook from them in their own kitchens. First, we'll hear from Rika. I, I use cookbooks a lot for baking 
And I love Dory mm. Greenspan's baking books. Um, my boss, David, does represent her, but I knew her before I even knew David. <laughs> um, I used to work for her way back when and test recipes for her on the, I tested recipes for her on the two cookbooks she did with Pierre May and then one of her own mm. baking books. Um, and I love the way she holds you know, home cooks, home bakers, readers' hands, you know, take this out of the pot. Okay, where do I put it? I put it here. You know, she tells you every single step. And I think there was, you know, it was a trend at one point, this has passed, but to make recipes quick and snappy mm -hmm. and short and not too long, because then they look intimidating. But the fact is a longer recipe just tells you what to do at every step as opposed to leaving you to fill in the blanks. Um, so I love Dory's baking books. I think she's fantastic. Yeah, they are wonderful. They're so detailed. Is that something that you look for in a good cookbook in general, like more um, intricate explanations of what's going on with the ingredients? For me, that's part of the voice. I mean, no one wants to read in a large pot, combine all ingredients. You know, you want some <laughs> voice, you want someone to say it a little differently, you want, you know, a little bit more, I don't know, something. <laughs> um, you know, I'm, yeah, I'm, <laughs> I just sold... Yeah. I just sold a project um, by Ashley Shanti, who's a chef down in Asheville, North Carolina. And mm -hmm. she writes so fantastically. She writes it herself. Um, her recipes are amazing. And there's so much voice. Um, she's taking you into the kitchen with her, into her relative's kitchen, into these various micro regions in the South. Um, and it's so, you know, she transports you. And I love that. And there's no in a large pot combine the first five ingredients. You know, that's just so um, antiseptic. And, and it's the opposite of what she does. Um, and I, I, you know, you, you want to be entertained, you want to be um, feel like someone's there with you. Monica, too, loves a cookbook with a voice and a good idea. Her favorite cookbook, though, has never actually been published. One of my favorite cookbooks is this cookbook called Vittles by Ronnie Lundy. Um, it looks at like Appalachian cuisine and it it's structured around ingredients. It's very mm -hmm. beautiful physically and photographically. Um, and I just felt like that structure around in ingredients was really cool. So like there's a chapter for like corn and then all these corn recipes for just for like beans. Like it's really cool. Um, and I, I really love, I really love that book. Um, I feel like the Autolenghi cookbooks are just like obvious, like those cookbooks were revolutionary. They changed a lot about the cookbook world. Um, mm. uh, I really like baking cookbooks as well. Like I look at them as aspirational. There's this, there's this um, pie shop called Petey's in New York that I love and their cookbook is amazing. Um, I'm trying to think of some more. Oh, I really like um, the Mission Chinese cookbook. I think it's really mm. beautiful because it's, it's it also tells a narrative about um, the writer's like life story um, as well as like the recipes. I think that cookbook is really good. Um, all my cookbooks are currently in storage right now. It's horrible. No, because no, I moved um, oh. and I I'm getting work done on the place where I live now, and mm -hmm. so I had to put all my cookbooks in storage. And I like was only and I, I, people have like given me new ones since I moved, so I have mm -hmm. those ones, but like they haven't fully. You know, they're not really my cookbooks yet. Um, but yeah, the main, yeah, I, yeah right? Like, 
they're there and they're pretty, but like, I haven't really cooked from them yet. But yeah. the main cookbook that I use and, and like really inspires me is my mom made me a cookbook when I was like leaving, um, leaving my, like when I moved to New York from my hometown mm-hmm. um, and she's a scrapbooker and she like made me this cookbook with like all the recipes that we used to cook together. And some of the ones that um are like very Polish um, and I really love that cookbook. Like that's probably the one I use the most. That's such an amazing gift. That's like the dream gift is like a family cookbook. I can't even imagine having one of those. That must be so special. Yeah, she <laughs> made one for me and one for my sister. So we both have one. And um, yeah, it's it's wonderful. And like, I I just think that those kinds of things are special and cookbook cooking is so personal. So like, you know, some people have like literal pieces of paper printed out in drawers or like cards with like food drop dropping all over it. And that's their cookbook. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just feel like you have to meet people where they are. And I think the cookbooks that speak to people for who, what, what, who they are and why they love to cook and eat and be with and who they're cooking for are my favorites. Like the prune cookbook is really good for this reason as well. Um, mm-hmm. It gives this feeling of like very intimate and like sharing. Um but yeah, the Barbudo cookbook is my newest cookbook. Um, and mm-hmm. it's also really great because I went to Barbudo and had like the best salad ever. And now I'm like, oh, I can't wait to like cook that salad, right? Like I'm someone yeah. who really needs to cook with something specific. Diane's answer might actually be similar to some of your own. I'm so sorry to be so mundane about it, but I do cook from Yotam Motolenghi's books. I really mm-hmm. enjoy them. And his recipes are fantastic. So I agree. I don't think that's mundane at all. Those are some of like the most excellent cookbooks that I own. Yeah, they're amazing. Yeah. I mean he's so I mean they're so common now. But they didn't, you know, people didn't really know mm-hmm. anything about that kind of food. And he puts his own spin on that kind of food, which makes it even more interesting. I like how vegetable forward they are. I like all the spices and um and they're sometimes they're a little too fussy for me, but I've been cooking long enough that I can make my own little tweaks to make it easier for me. So yeah, yeah. books are a lot yeah. of fun and they're all beautiful. Well, thank you so much for joining us on Salt and Spine and opening the door behind what goes on to getting a published cookbook. I think it's mysterious to a lot of us home cooks out there how we end up with these beautiful objects in our kitchens. Thank you. Yeah, it's fun. I, I hope it wasn't um, too shocking to learn how hard it is to get a cookbook deal. But the publishers are, they will, even though I've said, you know, what they want, they are always looking for, they're always looking for the next big thing. They're always looking for new cuisines that they haven't covered. Somebody who who's good at telling a story about a different part of the world and and understands river combinations. So yeah, there'll be there'll be more. I was just looking through the lists of the best new cookbooks for spring and there was, let's see, Himalayan home cooking, Arab diasporic cooking, Galagichi cooking, Afro Caribbean chef cookbooks. So it's nice it's it's really nice to see that yeah. they've branched out. But then there's the usual grilling, nerdy tech books, technique-based books, salad, steak, baking, vegan, vegetarian cookbooks, plus pizza and bread. So 
they mix it all up and and we love something we love more than looking through a new cookbook right And that's our show for today. We'll be hearing about some of those spring books Diane mentioned later in the season, authors like Peter Hoffman and Kwame Onwache. That marks the end of our special series, though, Behind the Spine. I hope you've enjoyed listening as much as I've enjoyed creating it. Special thanks to Diane Jacob, who was involved from day one in the planning and the brainstorming. And of course, to our host, Brian Hogan-Stewart, for letting me run with his idea. Stay tuned next week. We'll be returning to our usual episodes for more conversations with your favorite cookbook authors. You can find bonus content from our episodes on saltandspine.com. Remember, if you like hearing from your favorite authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, please click subscribe wherever you're listening. And of course, you can join the Salt and Spine community and support our show at patreon.com slash saltandspine. Our show today was produced by me, Clea Worster, and our host, Brian Hogan-Stewart. Salt and Spine's kitchen correspondent is Sarah Varney. The Salt and Spine original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Salt and Spine is typically recorded at the Civic Kitchen in San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen offers virtual and in-person classes for home cooks. Find out more at civickitchensf.com. Thanks, as always, to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonomo, and the Civic Kitchen team, to Edible San Francisco, and to Celia Sack at Omnivore Books. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love. Mm-hmm.